0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We've seen a lot of examples since the pandemic started of the ways that COVID-19 is really devastating communities of color. With racial data now being collected and reporting, it's clear that African Americans are dying at much higher rates. There is no place perhaps else in the country that that's clearer than right here in the city of Detroit and in the state of Michigan. Think about the contrast between the experience that we're having here in Detroit with uh, the number of people who are sick, the number of people who are dying, and what we see in places outside of the city where populations look a little different. Now, there are a lot of reasons that that's true. A lot of them have to do with... Uh, health disparities that have been with us for a really long time, environmental differences, uh, density differences between big cities like Detroit and places outside uh, of the city. But they also have to do with uh, a lot of things that that don't directly relate to health and welfare. And they are things that uh, we we have been thinking about for a long time but haven't come up with really good answers. We wanna talk today about those disparities and the president and CEO of the NAACP, Derek Johnson, is going to join us for that conversation. Um, We are still waiting, frankly, for Derek Johnson to join us and so we we wanna move on actually to the second part of what we wanna talk about today, which is kind of a related topic. It's not just about the racial disparities from COVID 19, but we are seeing other kinds of racial disparities continue to play out, of course, in American culture. Last week, we saw a horrendous, but sadly not surprising video of yet another young black man being gunned down. This time, it was in Georgia, and his name was Ahmad Aubrey. He was running down the, middle of the street. In the middle of the day when two white men in a parked pickup truck shot him and ended his life at just 25 years old now there is a lot going on in this tragedy aside from it being the latest really vile example of hatred and bigotry against people of color just trying to live it also speaks to a kind of codified and systemic racism that allows perpetrators like the men in that pickup to retroactively claim self-defense. Think of how often in the past few years alone we have confronted this kind of situation when we have seen white perpetrators kill African-Americans and say they felt threatened, say that they were defending themselves and be believed, believed by authorities, believed by the public. In fact, in this case, The two men in the pickup were only arrested after the public saw the video. The video existed for months, in fact, before authorities acted. So that's where we want to begin the discussion on the hour today, talking about the dynamics that are embedded in our society that allow these kinds of killings to take place again and again. How often does this have to happen before we see change? And how does it connect to our history of racial violence? There's a new museum in Alabama that commemorates all of the Americans, African Americans mostly, who were lynched in this country. I haven't been there yet, but the photos and the coverage of that opening, each time I think about it, is just overwhelming you think about how much a part of our history that is. But what happened in Georgia last week is contemporary. That's unfolding now. And it's so similar to the things that we see in museums, like that lynching museum in Alabama. We've got two folks with us today who spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and we'll help lead the discussion. And of course, we wanna hear from you. What do you think of these videos? What do you think of this case and the epidemic cases of violence against unarmed people of color? And what do you think it'll take to change the morbid routine killing of black men, young black men in particular? Do you think running to honor Arbery's life is the right way to commend and remember someone Or is that not enough? And if you think we need to do more, what does that more look like? Joining us now to talk more about that is Lester Spence. He's a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Lester, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Hi, what's up man, thanks for having me.
0: Yes. Uh, So I just quickly wanna get your thoughts on this incident and how you react personally to seeing something like this. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. We both have sons who are out in the world who are beginning to either be men or look like men. Uh, mm-hmm. And every time something like this happens, I think it strikes us a little differently than it does everybody else. In other words, I think we can, we can, uh, we can pinpoint our reaction to a very personal Example and a very specific fear.
1: Uh, Yeah. So I remember. uh, So first it's funny because I remember uh, when we all got word of it, you know, through social media, uh, people were were spreading it, you know, as, as they should. But I just made sure like I've never. I never watched a video. I don't know if I've ever seen one of the videos. Right. Because it's like I don't I don't need to. See it to know what's going to happen, and I, and I, you know, and I figure it's going to have a certain type of effect on me. Um, I remember there was this there was this party uh, that they used to have uh, at, or a friend of mine would have. In fact, she went to she graduated from Renaissance in '88, but mm-hmm. she lived in uh, in Baltimore. You know, Detroiters are pretty much everywhere. So mm-hmm. she has this dope picnic in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Baltimore. It's kind of our version of maybe a Palmer woods kind of sort of, um, and it's in the middle of their biggest, our uh, Baltimore's biggest, um, summer event Artscape. you know, which you imagine you've been to when you were here
0: many times.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yep. And, uh, she used to work for, uh, for the former mayor. So she would have, uh, sometimes she would have police come and give her kind of a special type of protection and at the last year's uh, event the police came to her and was like listen what we're going to do is make sure that folks from artscape don't don't come by and he basically said it even though he was african-american what he was basically telling her and she kind of chipped out on it was that she was he, that he was going to try to protect the event from quote unquote the element and my son actually was at Arts you know, was at Artscape and then was gonna come to the party. My son is what well, he's eighteen, nineteen, um, a face full of hair, wearing a do rag, and then driving my car, which was at the time like a two thousand hoopie. <laughs> and I have to basically walk him to his car. When he comes to hang out, I have to walk him to my car because I knew I know that the police are are there to try to protect the party from him. And that's happened to me at least one other time I could think of. And that happens to, you know, that happens to all of us, right? So, so here we are in a moment and we're going to, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this because we're really in a unique world altering moment. And on one level, the one thing we all need to be able to do is to get out and breathe. Like I write a newsletter Mm. like every week and a lot of times I end the newsletter with telling people to go outside and breathe. And then something like this happens and then it's hidden and you realize two things. One is, is, uh, that you really, that some people just can't go out and breathe. But the other thing, even though these killings are not new because this moment is new, you realize that we're actually in the middle of the closest thing to the civil war that we've had since the, since the early 1950s hmm. and almost everything is up for grabs and, and it's just, we're all just trying to do what we can to stay sane. And it's like, damn, and we've got to think about this too, um, but it is what it is. Hmm.
0: So so I wonder what you make of the media coverage of this, because I think media coverage often plays a pretty pivotal role in the way that people React to these to these incidents. This one's a little different because it's so delayed. But are the media uh, pointing this or pushing this in the right direction, or are we seeing some more confusion and lack of clarity? I guess uh, come out of the, the the coverage of this.
1: So the coverage of this, uh, and I has not haven't done uh, extensive you know, analysis. So this is really, really just me kind of eyeballing it. Uh, Coverage of this reminds me of uh, what happened with Trayvon Martin because I don't know if you remember. I think it was, in fact, Trayvon Martin and also the, um, the Texas, uh, not the Texas, the Louisiana, the case years ago with the, with the kids and the lynching in high school. Oh, right. The,
0: the Texas, the something five
1: was the. Yeah, yeah. Was it Jenna? Jenna.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Gen five or Gen
1: something six. Of that? Gen of six. That's I right. I think it's Gen of six. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of that and that there's a stagger, there is a delay, right? There's a, this this large, this this big delay, and then what happens is people end up kind of sharing it with the political purpose of getting it actually seen. For the purpose of having justice actually begin, right, a, a justice, a justice process begin. So, to a certain extent, it, it, it reminds me. It reminds me of those two activities, um, and then, but then, and again, this is because I haven't done anything extensive. I've at least seen the types of questions that I would ask, like, okay, you know, what happened? Why did it take so long? You know, what's going to be done? Not just to the individuals. But what's going to be done about about the process itself? Because it, it shouldn't have been this type of delay. I've seen the have seen the media I've examined, uh, which really is the media who my who my uh, network shares on Facebook. They've asked the right questions, or they've beg- they've asked the right questions, which suggests that the way the media the, that the way the event has shared was shared actually is having its desired effect yet and still at the same time i am aware and again i don't watch this stuff either because i we're in a pandemic and i'm trying to stay sane and i'm single parenting three kids like every day so i gotta actually have my head right um i know that there are also incidents in which uh or immediate there's a media coverage that's uh that tends to be conservative that kind of questions the whole racial analysis right um so you th- and in fact this is you, because you also have individuals who are involved in this case on the other side who want to actually articulate another story of the event. I mean, one of the first stories, I, I remember the first story I read, actually, um, they included the kid's record, right? It's like, okay, wait a second, he was killed. Right. He, he was killed, right? He was the one that was killed. Why are you having his record, Right. So there, there is this complicated thing, but then folding back on my original point is that even, you know, like I, like I could see the media for sources I read, I could see kind of almost in real time them navigating that and then kind of understanding like, okay, this isn't actually how we should be covering this. You know, the, the real important questions is, are why did it take so long? Why was the process halted? What are we going to do with the camera person? And then, you know, how long does it take to arrest these guys? And then, you know, once that started, you know, I think I've seen them kind of unlike the pandemic, because I think there are a lot of things to be said for the racial angle of pandemic coverage. I would think I, the media sources I've seen have been working in real time and have been doing at least a, a fair to decent job of covering it. Mm.
0: Uh, I want to welcome another voice to this conversation as well. Uh, Eve Brensicki Primus is a professor of law and director of the Public Defender Training Institute at the University of Michigan Law School. Eve, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Hi. Hi, Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes. Um, So this story happened months ago, but the video is just now being released. What can you tell us about what these men These white men were first claiming, which was that they suspected a minor property crime and how their actions were considered self-defense against a man with no weapon. This is a common claim that we hear from people when they gun down unarmed black men. And for whatever reason, uh, it's a claim that, that tends to work until there's evidence that sort of pushes the inquiry into a different direction.
2: Yes. So, you know, when I first saw the reports that these men were claiming self-defense, I thought it was kind of amazing that that was something that individuals who knew anything about the law would give some credence to, uh, in part because anyone who knows anything about self-defense law understands that there is in self-defense law something known as the initial aggressor provision, which means uh, it is very challenging for you to raise a self-defense claim if you are the initial aggressor, unless the person against whom you are aggressing somehow raises the level of aggression. And what is obvious, whether you even watch the video or you just hear the news reports about what happened, is that it was the McMichaels uh, who had weapons, who approached Mr. Arbery, who initiated... um, a confrontation with Mr. Arbery, and so they were the ones who were the initial aggressors, not Mr. Arbery. So I think it's it's not a viable claim as I look at both the video and the facts as they emerged.
0: Mm. And and so. Talk about why that kind of claim, and this gets to some of the, 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 I think the the legal questions about around things like stand your ground laws and mm-hmm. other kinds of, uh, uh, I guess you know legal dynamics around this kind of uh, incident or confrontation. They talk about why we continue to see difficulty uh, around getting people to 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 believe that you know, if you get out of your truck and, and confront somebody, I don't know, you're not defending yourself. I mean, there's a racial dimension to these things.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a racial dimension. I mean, if, if you know, if you look at George Barnhill's letter, like ostensibly recusing himself, but then giving an opinion on what he thinks happened here, he says things in that letter like maybe Arbery shot himself, which is just an incredible claim for someone to make, that he was the one somehow who got a finger on the trigger, even though it was the McMichaels who had the gun in the first place. And as a, someone who was a public defender who represented countless people of color, I can tell you in all of my experience, never when there was a struggle between a client of mine who was a person of color and someone else would anyone suggest that that other person somehow shot himself. Mm. Uh, it's just not a perception that people would have. And I think it what, what winds up playing out here is it is true that in self-defense, there is a concept of reasonable fear. And what is reasonable for people to believe is informed by what they view as the nature of the confrontation. And I have no doubt here that there are individuals, at least given the delay in charging that occurred in this case, who somehow like are opining. And you can see this in Barnhill's letter. He's suggesting that somehow Mr. Arbery like attacked the McMichaels, even though the video doesn't show that kind of attack. So if the video doesn't show an attack, where is that assumption coming from? It has to be coming from some sort of implicit or explicit bias. We know from countless research that there are a number of implicit biases against African American men in our society, and one of the implicit biases or associations that people will make about black men, right, is they associate them with violence. And that is a uh, like misperception that many Americans, whether they're white, black, brown, right, or of any other race, will make of black men in part because of the way our society has criminalized poverty and has criminalized African Americans in this country. And so it's not surprising to me that the assumption that he's going to make is that somehow Arbery is the one who actually initiated this confrontation, even though that's not what the evidence in the case actually suggests.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the killing of Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia and what may happen in the criminal justice system now that two men who were responsible for his killing have been arrested. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you as well. Give us a call and tell us what you think about this case and about the epidemic of violence against unarmed people of color. What do you think it will change? What do you think it will take to change this dynamic in our society? As always, the number is 313 577 1019 here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking about the killing of Ahmad Arbery, a young black man who was jo- jogging in a Georgia neighborhood uh, when two white men in a pickup saw him, thought he was a potential robbery suspect, and confronted him with a shotgun and killed him. Uh, they were not charged for a very long time, and then a video surfaced publicly of them uh, encountering uh, Mr. Arbery. And now, of course, it is one of the latest examples of uh, a national sort of a reminder of the violence that young black men often face in this society and the lack of consequences that white perpetrators often face when they do these kinds of things. We wanna hear from you uh, this hour about this incident. Give us a call and tell us what you think of this killing, of this lynching, which is a word that that we're gonna talk about in a second and how it connects to this, how it connects to our history and to our present. Um, What do you think about the sort of epidemic of violence against unarmed people of color that we seem to be witnessing a little bit more frequently right now because of things like cell phones? Uh, What do you think it'll take to change this morbid routine? And do you think there are specific things that we can do with regard to Arbery's case that might push things in the direction of change? What are the things that we ought to be focusing on that would make this look As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Our guests uh, for this segment are Lester Spence, who is a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Also with us is Eve Brinsicki Primus. She is the professor of law and director of the Public Defender Training Institute at the University of Michigan's Law School. Lester, before we get to listeners, I want to have you react to some of the things that Eve was saying about the legal context of this. And I I want you to connect it to to historical examples, I mean, as we were talking before, there is a cultural history there, but there is a legal history as well that devalues black life in a pretty profound way, and this is, I think, one of the more uh, one of the more garish examples of that.
1: Yeah. So first, uh, first, I actually want to gently push back I, uh, against. Uh, I think people one of the challenges of this moment uh in general and then when something like this comes up is for us to is is we it's easy for us to say that this is the same thing as for example uh a lynching attended by hundreds of people in the 30s it's exact it's the exact same thing mm-hmm. and, and it's and it's actually and it's actually not now some elements of those are the same it's uh largely done um in uh, in a uh, with kind of a uh, the idea of protecting a certain type of property, or protecting a certain type of ge- uh, geographical space, right? Uh, so another thing that I don't think was a lynching, but was an act of, of racial violence, was the murder of, of Emmett Till in the er- in the early fifties, uh, when the kid was basically taken out of uh, out of when Emmett Till was taken out of his home and murdered mm-hmm. uh, overnight. Uh, there are elements of that right and and yes there's this long history in which uh black men are the victims are, are disproportionately the victims of a certain type of violence either on behalf of the state explicitly or on that behalf of people supposedly acting for the state right so trayvon martin wasn't a police officer um, but but he's able to kill Trayvon Martin. I mean, not Trayvon. George Zimmerman was not a police officer. Mm-hmm. He's able to kill Trayvon Martin and get off. Um, in this case, it certainly looks like if the uh, if the if if it wasn't videoed. And it's important to note that the person who took the video supposedly said that he took the video just in case so he could show that his friends were actually doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right. That's I. But but if this video wasn't shared broadly, it certainly looks like the uh, the individuals involved who worked for the state at some point in time in their lives, but weren't agents of the state, could actually kill a kid, uh, kill a black guy, and get uh, get away with it. So yes, there's there's this history, but at the same time, there's there's enough specificity about periods. That we really have to be, we have to do our job as kind of intellectuals and journalists to really, uh, p- uh, you know, periodize this. Yeah. Right? So it, it, for me, the fact, even though this happened before the pandemic, I actually think that the pandemic represents another, a different period in time. Mm. Even than the than the than the Trayvon Martin killing or the Michael Brown killing or the Eric Ferguson moment, right? We're, this this is a very different moment than those previous. Ones.
0: Yeah, I, I I absolutely agree with with that. I guess for me, what what connects this to something like lynching is is kind of two very specific points. One is that here uh the 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 perpetrators assigned to themselves uh the role of judge jury and executioner uh in in an instant right uh which which was uh which was kind of a a dynamic around lynching this idea of uh, people uh, deciding that they have this kind of authority to over someone else's life but the other is the overreaction to uh to the, the the supposed crime of of the victim right so here uh, what what some people are saying is well this guy was going in and out of houses in this uh, in this neighborhood that were under construction and and he might have been a robbery suspect and i'm not sure whether that's true or not there's there's you know a process that will determine that but even if it is let's say he was going in and out of houses and taking construction equipment or whatever, the idea that the proper response to that is a killing, right, a murder, uh, and that there shouldn't be consequence for that murder is, is again, uh, an echo of flinching. And I, and I think you're right that it's, it's, it's in a totally different time. And there are lots of things about it that aren't similar. But those two strains, I think, yeah. carry forward.
1: So, so here the here's the real important differences, right? Um, the lynchings were public spectacles. Yes, right. I mean they they were they were public spectacles. There is a um, this is a apocryphal, so it's, it's possible, isn't true, but it rings true. Uh, like there was there were public spectacles, and then the state was the state did push back actually in a, in a few minor cases, right? You had individuals who were trying to protect the, uh, the, the, the victim from being, for example, taken out of jail. But in other cases, like allegedly, like the governor of one of the deep south states had like knuckles in his office, right? I mean, I know what isn't apocryphal, on more, more than one occasion did major southern newspapers announce that a lynching was going to occur. Right. So so the fact that the state was directly involved and in this case, yeah, we had state actors implicitly involved. But as soon as the case got the light of day, all of a sudden deep southern officials stepped in. Now, we don't know what's going to happen. And that's going to be another question. But just so it wasn't a it wasn't a public spectacle with literally hundreds of people there picnicking why this was going to happen. Right. right. And then the second thing was the state actually stepped in. It's, you know, w- w- you know, in fact, in those state officials, some of them had to have probably have been elected by black people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is state violence. Uh, I think a friend of mine, uh, Daryl Scott, who's been really pushing this idea of being historically accurate. I think he turned uh, Afro side. I think this is an hmm. this is an act of of this is definitely an act of Afro side and there's a long history of that. Hmm. Um, but just those two things make it different. And again, then laying on top of that, uh, the pandemic then it's it's charged in a certain way, and then it means our response is going to be kind of
0: complicated. Yeah, uh, Eve, I I wonder if you can respond to what Lester's saying and draw some sort of legal context around around all that. The difference between Uh, lynchings and this kind of activity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would start by saying I agree, right, with a lot of what Lester said about some of the differences between the two. I think one thing that is interesting legally to think about this is I don't think the law sanctions what the McMichaels did here, Mm -hmm. right, from beginning until end, right? If you look at the georgia statute on what they're saying that this started as some form of citizen's arrest that the mcmichaels were allegedly perpetrating because it was alleged that mr Arbery was breaking into houses or performing burglaries even if we assume that that's true as you said um that would not justify a citizen's arrest under the Georgia statute, because the Georgia law says that a private person can arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. So from what I have read and gleaned from the facts of this case, this was all that they had heard there were these burglaries and that they assumed that it was Mr. Arbury because he looked like somebody who had... Been described to have committed these burglaries. There's nothing here that says they saw a burglary or that they had the kind of immediate knowledge that the citizens arrest statute contemplates. Because this citizens arrest statute was inig- originally enacted for like retail stores, mm-hmm. right? Imagine like you're in, uh, you know, uh, a Kmart or. Uh, A 7-Eleven or a convenience store of some kind and someone comes in and they shoplift and the store owner sees them taking stuff and trying to leave with it. This was enacted so that the store owner could stop the individual and detain them only when they had reasonable, probable grounds to believe that the person has committed a crime in order to call law enforcement and then have law enforcement take over. This was never meant to be some sort of roving citizens get to be police officers and can conduct their own independent investigations, relying on what they've heard to try and figure out who they think might have committed a crime. So this is not a citizen's arrest from the beginning, and the law should not be interpreted to think that that was valid in any way. In addition, the amount of force, even if they could have performed a citizen's arrest, the amount of force that they use would have been constitutionally unreasonable for a police officer to use. I mean, there's clear United States Supreme Court law on this. There's a case called Tennessee versus Garner that involved a burglary, like exactly the thing that they are accusing Mr. Arbery of having done. And the Supreme Court said that police cannot, even if they have probable cause to believe that a suspect committed a crime that is a felony they cannot use deadly force in order to capture that person unless that person poses a threat of serious physical harm to the officers or others Hmm. and obviously mr is unarmed he poses no threat of serious physical harm here and they're the ones with the weapons so you can't shoot to kill even if you had the authority to arrest somebody as a citizen you can't shoot to kill for a non-violent felony where a person doesn't pose a danger
0: yeah And, and that's where the racial dimension of this comes back in how do people see black men even unarmed black men as you know uh, do, do they see them as a, a non-threat even, even though they um, you know when they are a non-threat or do they see them as a threat because they are black and I think that'll be a real uh, there will be a real test of that question as this case uh, moves forward and especially if it gets to a jury. I want to get to listeners here. And again, if you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with John in Detroit. John, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Hi Mr. Henderson. How hey, are you? I'm good. How are you? Fine. Um, having been in law enforcement, recently retired for 40 years, I just want to express that this is exactly why you have to have diversity on your departments, on your prosecutor's office, in your city government. With that diversity you have transparency, and as much as we want to raise the alarms, and as we should, there should be a call for all our young black brothers and sisters that get on the police department, and that's where you can make more of an impact and that's why I give so much credit for our mayor Col- past mayor Coleman Young because he injected that diversity in our department with mm-hmm residency and so on mm-hmm. as a speech to mr um aubrey Ar- mm-hmm. i want to say having been faced with such a life-threatening moment he had two decisions to make to run or defend himself and what we saw with i think you saw the first shot behind the car which we do not know exactly what happened but i think but if you saw him confronted with that situation he tried to defend himself with everything he could. I was I was in uh, this. Not everybody could do that. And I also want to give you my condolences for our past friend who passed recently. I would be really interested in listening to what he would have to say about this issue. Yeah. I also want to give my kudos for the um, the black lawyer that you um, that is now speaking. And that we and 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 speak to our everyone and saying that get an education as difficult as it was maybe to get a good education in DPS you have to fight hard you have to get mm-hmm. it because this is where the fight lies we yeah. cannot be kept be kept sleep because if you look at our police department now it don't look like a, yeah, a do we we do recruits.
0: John, I, I really appreciate the call uh, uh, and, the, and the thoughts. Um, I, I, there's a lot to, to unpack there. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about uh, this killing in Georgia and how it connects or doesn't connect to the history of lynching or racial violence here in the country. Uh, we want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Eric and Oak Park. Surge in St. Clair Shores will get to you as well. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work them into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
3: 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Celebrating 70 years of radio in Detroit.
0: This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for joining. My guests are Lester Spence, a professor of political science and Africana studies at Johns Hopkins University. Also with us is Eve Brensicki who is a professor of law and director of the Public Defender Training Institute at the University of Michigan Law School. We're talking about the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey in Georgia while he was jogging, jogging through a Georgia neighborhood. Two white men in a pickup uh, decided that he was a probable suspect for some burglaries got out of their truck, confronted him with a shotgun, and killed him. Uh, they were not arrested for some time, and once the, a video of the killing was released to the public, now they have been arrested and charged. We want to know what you think about all of that and how it connects to the larger, larger context about uh, violence that people of color faced in this In this uh, society especially young unarmed black men we have seen a lot of instances of that Uh, lately we are seeing more of it i'm not sure that is happening more frequently i think we're seeing more because of technology uh, and people taking videos uh, and sharing them more frequently Uh, but give us a call and tell us what you think about all of those issues how they connect together and how they connect to history in this country Uh, The history of racial violence, the history of lynching, which uh, was such a profound influence on uh, our culture for such a long time in this country. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Eric in Oak Park. Eric. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Sure. Go um, ahead.
3: A, a couple minutes ago, you made a, a a point. I don't know if it was sort of a rhetorical question about, about sort of the perception of unarmed African American men, and it reminded me of a study I saw a few
1: years back about police use of force um, and how it was broken down by race of the target, and they found that unarmed. African American men were as likely to be shot by the police as armed white men, mm-hmm. and that seems that it just feeds into this. It's based off of this perception that being black is in and of itself a threat, mm-hmm. um, and then that seems to tie into to this case and kind of the meaning of of this, the the Georgia case.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm reminded of the descriptions. Um, that that you often see of black men after incidents like this happen uh, by police or or other perpetrators, this kind of uh, superhuman perception they have of of African American men uh, being able to to wield un, unmatched strength and and pose all kinds of. A physical danger uh, that that is well beyond what uh, what what reality would would suggest. I think uh, that study you're citing um, really confirms that kind of that kind of bias being pretty pretty widespread. Uh, Lester and Eve, I want to get you guys to react to to what Eric's saying, but also to what John, who is the caller that we took before the break, was talking about in terms of uh, personnel in police departments and in uh, prosecutor's offices in the ways in which diversity might be uh, a way to push back against this eve i'll start with you
2: sure i mean i think there's one sort of common thread it's interesting something that john mentioned about uh people being able to stand their ground and not have to retreat um and something that was just mentioned, also about the implicit biases that individuals have, and I think that's another way in which it's not just the police officers who have these kinds of implicit biases. I hear a lot of conversation about the McMichaels didn't have a duty to retreat, right? When you know allegedly Mr. Arbery came at them, and one could look at the stand your ground laws in Georgia and other states and say, why don't those work to the benefit of Mr. Arbery? Right? If you look at the video, or you look at the descriptions of exactly what happened. I have heard reports that Mr. Arbery was jogging, that they attempted to cut him off, that he tried to go a different path, that they eventually stopped. And if you look, he actually runs right to avoid encountering these individuals, and then there's a confrontation that happens in the front, and that could just as easily be explained as Mr. Arbery defending himself. But the narrative is now somehow that there's some claim of self defense from the McMichaels, mm-hmm. and that is also r- a racially infused narrative, right? Like, why is it the assumption that the white individuals are defending themselves from the black man? Mm-hmm. Why isn't the assumption that the black man is defending himself from the armed individuals? Mm-hmm. Um, And and so I think it applies not just to uh, police officers, but also to prosecutors, right? And those who are involved in the justice system that we would like to see more diversity and more understanding and more nuance and less reliance on implicit bias. I do think there has been some movement in departments and the legal profession more generally to try to push toward diversity. It is just a starting point. Um, There actually was a Bureau of Justice report, back in 2013 where they did a survey of more than 12,000 local police departments in the United States and In 1987, the racial or ethnic minority composition of police departments was only 15 percent. And that had moved in 2013 up to about 27 percent. That is nowhere near what it needs to be. Um, But there has been some improvement and there have been increases in implicit bias training in police departments, in prosecutors' offices. So there's a little bit of movement in the right direction. But I think that, John, the caller is right. There needs to be more.
0: Mm. uh Lester, uh, just as a reminder of how long you have been talking and thinking about this uh, this instant uh, one of the one of the pieces that I was looking at uh, over uh, over the weekend getting ready for the interview was from December of 2006 where you were uh, on NPR talking about the shooting of New Yorker Sean Bell hours before. His wedding. So this this bias, oh. this implicit bias that goes on in police departments and in the oh. wider culture, again, is is not new.
1: So uh, I saw a couple of, of points. So one is, is um, there's a graduate student at the University of Chicago, Marcus Lee, he may not even be a graduate student anymore. He actually wrote an article. Uh, a social science article originating stand your ground racial violence and neoliberal reason reason and what he did was he among other things was he actually examined the debate around the development of stand your ground legislation in Florida and it's clear that racial discourse and racial codes actually shaped the carving of the legislation from the jump because it was because there were certain types of people that legislators wanted access to stand your ground, and certain types of people that the legislators did not want to have access to stand your ground. Mm. That dynamic was racialized. So it's important while we talk about implicit bias, which tends to lead to technocratic solutions or diversity solutions, it's important to really imp- to start first and foremost with the political dynamics, right? So I mentioned the Voting Rights Act, like what what you have in Georgia is likely people who were elected by black representatives. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think the, the woman who, uh, who, Jackie Johnson, she's an official who I think uh, helped delay the, the issue. And now people are calling for you know, for her leaving. And they're able to do that in part because the Voting Rights Act exists. We have mm-hmm. to talk about that. We have to start with that, actually, as opposed to implicit bias, bias or diversity that, although with that said, I talk about the pandemic um, being important uh, in this moment, I actually would have pushed back hard against the diversity argument, mm-hmm. largely because African, because the police themselves have their own culture. And there are a number of instances in which uh, black police officers, particularly in the North, out, you know, outside of the South, in which black police officers are involved with this stuff, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the race of the police officer, uh, you know, again, although know, this case we're not talking about a police officer at all, it's the race of the victim, right? Right. But how the pandemic makes this more fraught is in a in a different way. We actually need we need black people to 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 kind of learn to use. I never would have said this on the show. We need black people to learn how to use weapons, hmm. and we do need more black people in the police force because what we're looking at, given what's been happening so far is the, uh, exaggeration of racial differences within the state and within space to the point of conflict. Mm. Right? So it's deep that when John referred to the person he wished were here to talk about the show, I, I live in Baltimore and I've lived in Baltimore since two, I have not been in Detroit since <laughs> 1998 and I knew exactly who he was talking about. Mm. Yes. right i knew exactly who he was talking about he's my fraternity brother right right? so given what's happening with this with this really civil war become hot then yeah because what what we're looking at for the first time since the 50s is the moment where people aren't only going to need to use legislation to contest this but it's possible we'll actually have to use other methods and i never again i never thought we'd be here i'd say something like that um on the air
0: yeah um, uh, Eve, we've got, about, uh, we've got about two minutes left, but I, I want you to respond to what Lester's saying there, especially about remedies being perhaps outside the realm of legislation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is anytime you're dealing with a systemic problem that comes from all branches of government and society, there's not going to be a solution that involves just one area like to address this problem. It's going to have to be addressed along multiple dimensions. And I think that involves both reforms within police departments and police agencies. It involves reforms legally within the courts. It involves reforms politically within the jurisdictions. Um, So I don't think there is going to be any one solution. But I do think we've seen like a little bit of seeds for possible ways to help address at least some of these problems. And I think Lester's right that like the voting power is an important power to discuss here, especially at a time when there have been so many movements to disenfranchise individuals, particularly people of color who have criminal records um, and we see in Florida an effort to give people the right to vote that was then taken away again um, and that's an important part of this story as well uh, but I think it's important also to discuss the fact that like look you got to change culture in the way police departments interact with the citizens that they police. And that is a hard thing to do, but it's not an impossible thing to do. And it comes from a variety of places. It comes from top-down leadership that understands creating a culture where the police aren't viewed as scary as important. Mm.
0: Eve Brensicki Primus and Lester Spence, this was a really wonderful conversation. I'm glad we had both of you here for it. Thanks for being here. All right, that's gonna do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow and I hope you will too. We're gonna talk with Bridge Magazine's new indigenous reporter about her focus on issues happening within the state's Native American community, plus a conversation about the difficult choice between health and employment. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.